Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey everyone, welcome to the 299th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Ryan Lagarde, which is a pretty awesome last name, you gotta admit, and Leela London, who also has a cool last name. I have heard it before, but it's also very cool. Pretty Anyhow, cool. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Lowe. Today we've got Glenn Reynolds on the show. He's a distribution consultant and independent film veteran who runs the company Circus Road Films. Uh, which, after uh, full disclosure, happens to be the people who helped us sell See You Next Christmas. He pitched us independently, which is funny. And I was like, hey, Glenn, how you doing, buddy? And realized, oh, he would be an awesome and obvious guest for us to have on the show. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's been around the block many times over. He knows everybody in town and kind of had some pretty illuminating information. Specifically, I think he blew your mind, Oren, about film festivals. Oh, totally. I have not been able to use my mind properly since then. Yeah, that's why this uh, so intro is going so well. <laughs> uh, no, he, he. So for people that don't quite understand what a person like Glenn does, is he's the type of person you've made a movie and you want to sell it to Amazon to put it in theaters to a distributor, uh, whatever your plan is for the movie. He is the person that helps you go from film to distribution yeah and you know it's funny i feel like so many listeners have been like ah what do i do if i don't have an agent what do i do if i don't have an agent and agents are good for for many things and sometimes depending on what agency you're at they will have part of their their business will be selling your film representing your film right but not always and not even necessarily if you are repped at that agency you know but glenn functions just like that basically. So you don't need an agent is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And you can hire him. So yeah, uh, he works for money, I believe. (laughs) So uh, yeah, regardless of your rep situation, he can work for you. The one catch, and it's a big catch, is that he needs to like your movie. (laughs) And he needs Mm -hmm. to understand, at, at least he needs to understand that there is a place to distribute your movie. And that in itself is so valuable for him to even say like, hey, I can sell this movie or I can't sell this movie. You know, that's amazing feedback. Sure, Which, to be fair, is true for agents as well. I was kind of hinting that that you can be repped at an agency and, you know, like you could be repped across the board at an agency or, or have like a lit rep and the independent film department may not click with your film. And then even if you're signed to that company, they don't rep it. Right. So it's st- it's still kind of a catch as catch can sort of situation. And look, the bigger the client you are, the the more political pressure there is for them to rep your film, you know, and the less taste becomes a part of it. But um, but that's always the case, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. So Glenn is the man, and we're going to enjoy talking to him. Uh, we have a pretty long conversation, so I'm going to keep this intro short, but I will mention it is December 22nd today. It's one of the very few times we recorded the intro 
minutes before <laughs> the episode gets uploaded to the internet because it's going to come out tomorrow on December 23rd. So happy holidays to everyone. I hope everyone is uh, is with... Is, I, I don't know. I don't know what I hope for. I mean, mm-hmm. we all thought this was going to be safe. fun. I mean, yeah. Yeah. do you think we're all going to get COVID at some point within the next month and a half? I, I kind of do, unless you really like lock yourself down, in which case... Like, if you're going to get COVID at any time, don't you think this is the time to get it? You can get it, get through it. Two weeks later, no one's shooting anything. End of the year. Listen, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I, I think there's probably some pretty flawed, that's flawed logic. I get your point is that it feels like it's getting everyone. But I don't, I don't know that that means like it's a responsible or wise decision to just kind of like throw caution to the wind and and surrender to the to the virus uh for many reasons but your point is is like it's you know it feels inevitable is what you're saying like i'm seeing people on twitter saying like i'm triple vaxxed you know wear masks social distance hand wash do nothing still get got covid like literally went Mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. liquor store to buy some milk somehow got covid and it's already omicron is already the dominant strain in america sure it's sure. crazy the, like the takeaway weeks. there Oren, is get boosted is the important takeaway because right. i think that there are plenty of people who are twisting that logic into like well i'm gonna get it anyway so who cares the vaccine doesn't help no no uh, no of course get and, boosted. Uh, i mean know. i'm like an addict i'm like i already got one yeah, yeah. booster i'm i'm trying yeah, to get ready. the other one you, yeah, sure. You're Schmoen Slaplin. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and when my dad lives in boosted. Israel, they're they're getting their second booster now. But if your two options are, you can try to avoid it and not leave your house for two weeks, and then very timidly leave your house, or you can get it, then not leave your house for two weeks, and once you leave, you know you already had it. Um, and you know, who knows? You could probably, you know, obviously you can get COVID again and again. But um, I don't know. I think. It's, yeah, there's certainly there's a, a, weird there's a happy medium that I think we're we're all kind of working our way through and learning about where, you know, again, masking is a big part of it, keeping your circle tighter than we would prefer, you know, eating outdoors. There, there's a happy medium. And I think that everyone is kind of trying to figure out what that is for themselves. You know, I, I think also it is the thing that I've observed the most frequently is like I think that your immediate social circle does really determine a lot of the ways in which you perceive the virus like my family is pretty stringent on it and so i think that we have kind of been relatively stringent as well and look it doesn't hurt that we've got a newborn and so we're both worried for her because she is not vaccinated in any way yet um from she is anything um she has uh, in theory she has antibodies from sure yeah yeah yeah. she's actually maybe hopefully the most protective against covid but there's whooping cough tetanus etc etc oh yeah tetanus is running rampant (laughs) i'm just saying like there's a cocktail that she gets at two months that uh you know our pediatrician was like hey don't you know don't let anybody who hasn't had their tetanus booster their tdap booster whooping cough is a fatal disease in infants for instance um oh a bunch of my friends lost infants for well Or and the reason that our children haven't been lost to whooping cough is thanks to that fix- vaccine, right? Like that's the reason that we can make that joke. It did kill people like seventy years ago. Well, yeah, yeah, but also pretty like, rampantly. I mean, a lot of people take out their like my one week. You know, my daughter sure. went you to a funeral and she was uh, a week old. And sure, sure, sure. 
but I'm saying we are less active than we would normally be during this season because we're just busy taking care of a infant, basically. So okay. it's easy for us to like. Okay, then out. you don't want me to hook you up with COVID. I hear you. <laughs> I do. That is definitely true, bro. <laughs> I think get Moderna, get Moderna, then get Pfizer, Moderna, then get COVID. Then you're done for like two months. <laughs> then, we, then we do the whole thing over again. Well, I, the unfortunate thing is that I think we're still waiting to hear on the data from that. Certainly, we have learned that people who had the OG strain of COVID can get Omicron. Oh, for sure. Um, I think even if you had bummer. Delta, you can get Omicron. Yeah. So I don't know. We are, this is not medical advice. Uh, do not take this. It's funny. I, you know, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos about like trading and stuff. And every single video is like, hey, I'm going to tell you how to get rich tomorrow. This is not financial advice or anything I say is just for entertainment. Do not take this as financial advice. Anyhow, that, that's what I'm saying about medical advice. Don't take it from us. Um, but also don't take it from or your are you crazy saying uncle. The algorithm is radicalizing you. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that uh, there is <laughs> a rightfully so a fear of anyone that does any sort of broadcasting, whether it's on YouTube, on TikTok, what we do, a podcast of people taking their advice <laughs> and then, uh, it going terribly wrong. Sure. Uh, so don't take our advice. Um, so if you've moved to Los Angeles on our advice <laughs> in the last six years we were just joking how it's going. don't move to la work from home <laughs> yeah. uh but do i will say you should get vaccinated and boosted I, I apologize if that's controversial in your circle but it's uh it's so fun it's so good and you get a sticker yeah so do it um cool selfies okay before we talk to glenn i do want to remind people we have a patreon the patreon is literally the lifeblood of this podcast um it has been keeping us going through thick and thin when we're having babies being busy we feel an indebtedness to our patrons so you might not think it makes a difference but it actually makes a huge difference or would you say it's accurate that if we did not have a patreon you would have quit by now <sighs> i don't know i don't know if that's accurate Maybe. i would Maybe. have i would have listeners you heard that side less guilty about quitting i have not really wanted to quit the podcast um for a while but i we have do, both been pretty busy i do realize it's i've made hard. A, a lot of empty promises on the podcast not things i'm going to do that have never actually happened and i i will say looking at our patrons getting new patrons like every time we get you know someone pops up in our email like hey you got a new patron i'm like yeah we gotta we we're gotta doing something keep, meaningful keep for trucking yeah. yeah yeah so so uh the moral support the financial support it's all uh, a big part of that but if you want a little bit more of an incentive uh this is the last week to get our just shoot it hats at ten dollars a month um after that we're raising the price to 15 so if you've ever wanted that hella cool just shoot it hat um and you want to spend a little less money on it even if it comes out of our pockets uh now's the time Another time, pull over, stop working out, and uh, hop on patreon.com slash just shoot a pod to get that hat. And I'm mailing out a bunch of hats tomorrow. So if you are at that $10 level and haven't received it yet, you will receive it very soon. Supposedly, there's no congestion in uh, mailing this time of year. So you should, should be, be getting pretty it easy. ASAP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, next day. Yeah. Okay. Just kidding. All right, everybody. Here's an ad. Uh, Here's Glenn. We'll talk to you later. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Glenn, you know, we know you work in distribution, film distribution. Can you tell us exactly like what you and Circus Road Films do? Yeah. So I started Circus Road Films about 15 years ago to be a so-called producer rep company, which is a specialized sales agent for U.S. rights. And so I help filmmakers get distribution in the United States. Sometimes that's acting as a festival advocate to try to help get their films into festivals and then sell their movie. Sometimes it's going straight to buyers with films that have already been in festivals or don't really need a festival. And then I ultimately help negotiate the contracts and do the redlining of them and all that stuff. And and kind of consult my filmmakers kind of throughout the whole process. Some take advantage of that, some don't. But, you know, sometimes they're doing their own theatrical or they're trying to figure out how to market their movie. I sometimes help on that score as well. So I kind of soup to nuts trying to help them from, you know, when they're done with it through getting distribution and sometimes, you know, pretty far into distribution as well. Is it in just feature films is your focus? Yeah, it's most it's narrative and documentary feature films. I have helped a few shorts in the festival world, but there's no you know, way to really monetize shorts that would make sense for me. God, I've helped on a couple of series, but very little, a little bit on series. Yeah, your bread and butter is, is feature films. Yeah, basically. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So is there like is getting distribution for an indie series a thing or not? Not really nowadays. Not really. It, it's I mean, I know all the right people to show it to and seemingly you would think, you know, Netflix and Hulu, they're all making, you know, their series are obviously very popular for them. And they kind of started out in movies and then headed towards series. And obviously that's, you know, and you would think, look, the, the, the risk profile is not too dissimilar because it's tough to get significant, meaningful distribution for a feature. And it's tough also for an episodic. There's just a bit of more of a backstop for features in that if you can't, you know, you, you can get digital distribution, you can get you know, some you know, smaller streaming deals. But an episodics, you know, you're kind of going for broke with with an episodic for sure. And the and the and the bar is really high. I mean, 
without A-list talent or without, you know, making something just that's kind of undeniable in some way. Um, it's really tough. Yeah. So well, never say never, but it's not, right. it's not, we haven't seen that many success stories yet. We did have one though. One counterpoint on our podcast is uh, the guy that made that show bonding. It was a, a web show that I think he made for. Who did he well, make but he's, for? he still made it at a, at a studio. He made it for adaptive. So oh, okay. it's a, it's oh, a right, slightly, right. it's a different D it wasn't like a pure indie. But what's this, what, what is that? What, how are they a studio? I mean, it was a production company, right? That gave him. I mean, the difference being like, you know, a, a lot of money and also Hollywood connections, I think is probably. Yeah. It goes to your definition of independence. So for some people, independent is outside Hollywood period. For some people, independent is outside studio right? Even for films. So there's, you know, big films with names in them that international sales agents get put together without a U.S. distributor. And so people call that and, and they get and they hog up all the Indie Spirit Awards, right? Those are <laughs> right, right, you know, called right. independent films. In my world, those aren't independent films. I work on kind of true independent films. Things are were made with spit and tape and dentist mm -hmm. money. Mostly. It's funny. Speaking of actually, it's worth, it's worth saying before we get too much further down down the line that Glenn and I work together on See You Next Christmas. Right. You're as part of the distribution plan for the movie that Matt produced this year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was going to ask, I feel like back way back in the day when I was first getting into film, I read a definition of what an independent film is. And it was like a film that had no release date. Like there, there was, <laughs> you know, basically a film that you're making without knowing where it's going to end gonna up. be distributed. Yeah. 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 And so that would, you know, that would fit a lot more films than true independent films, because there are films made with international sales agents, you know, big production companies that don't quite make hit the mark of getting the theatrical that they thought it deserved and end up getting some smaller Netflix deal or smaller streaming deal um, or a big streaming or net, you know, Netflix deal. Maybe sometimes these days that's, that's also the big win. So yeah, it's, again, it's just, it's kind of a matter of, you know, perspective, just kind of where you're, you know, how you, again, for me, I define independent as being kind of outside of being made with Hollywood money as opposed to distribution money, just because that's the world I, I work in. And the lift is that much higher, right? It's just that much harder when you don't have names and you don't have millions of dollars, you know, being spent on your movie. Right. So you're kind of like under a million dollar, under $2 million somewhere like in the yeah. bag modified low budget world. Yeah. I don't like, I mean, I've definitely worked on films that were two, $3 million plus, you know, that were made without a net, but that's less and less the trend um, as costs have come down and people understand the business more and, you know, video and, Selling to HBO is not as prevalent as it used to be. You know, budgets are and should be made for, you know, when they're truly independent in that kind of half million and under, you know, range. Who is buying like a half a million and under movie now? Because I, I know I made my first feature was on Netflix for a few years, but that was in 2010. And it was a pretty common thing, you know. You make a movie, hopefully Netflix or Showtime or at the time, you know, Sundance Channel. IFC, there were a few kind of places that were picking up all the indie films. But then actually when my my contract with Netflix ended, you know, and it was time to renew, their whole attitude was like, eh, we, we don't really care that much about indie films anymore. We're much more into, into episodic stuff and movies that we produce ourselves. What's the what's the state today in 2021? 
Yeah, so overwhelmingly, most deals get made with so-called all rights distributors that handle everything from, you know, sometimes theatrical, but mostly straight to transactional VOD, and then handling other rights after that, including subscription video on demand like Netflix, and you know, advertising video on demand like Tubi, and they all have kind of the same windowing pattern that they how they take these films out. And that's where most films go. And there's, in my opinion, there's kind of different levels of company within that, within that bucket of companies. But occasionally we, I squeak one in, like I sold a film to HBO recently. Occasionally we'll get one into Netflix. So they still do buy and they can buy, they can take something and make it into an original. Um, they still do that although it's rare and they still buy from the distributors. So even if, you know, I can't place a film with HBO or Showtime, if I get a film into a company like a vertical or 1091 or Lionsgate, after they do transactional VOD, after about six months or so, they'll, they'll start trying to get it into that space. So films can still end up on Netflix and Hulu and whatnot downstream after it's been on iTunes and Amazon and things like that for a while. But that's where, Overwhelming, that's where most films go these days. That's interesting. I remember, you know, that movie Mudbound was nominated for an Oscar for the cinematographer. And it was a Netflix original, but I, I later found out that it was made, bef- you know, independently before Netflix bought it. So Netflix bought it and turned it into a Netflix original. Yeah, they have really two, at least at least two departments. Like there's an original department, there's a sequ- separate acquisitions team that watches films with that eye. And there's a whole separate people that distributors approach that look for a pay to window, which happens later. So it's definitely um, it's definitely something that, but it is more and more rare, and it's, it usually happens for bigger budgeted, you know, things that the you know like the, the so called Hollywood indie films that did things at a certain budget level are kind of going for those are the things that mostly get converted into originals. I, mean, I think an, an obvious uh, example that we we have the filmmakers on the podcast is Palm Springs, right? Palm Springs was independently created, but it had superstar talent played Sundance and then was acquired by Hulu, a big streamer. Right. So I think that's, that's an easy contrast to the sort of films that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. But that, yeah, that does have a list talent, a A list production company, but very Hollywood didn't have a release date to your point, Oren, you know, and the reason they still feel independent, though, is that is for every Palm Springs, there's a few dozen films in that same time period that blew it, right? That cast someone like uh, Sandberg, and it just it came out kind of cockeyed, and they just and someone like Lionsgate or whatever just drops it on transactional VOD, right? And it doesn't make a lot of money. There's a, you know dozens of them for every Palm Springs, so that's why. They have a point, you know, they have a case to be made to call themselves independent, even though I. I but uh, wasn't that an $8 million film, Palm Springs? I mean, it was sure. not a tiny budget. Sure, no, no. sure. But but yeah. what we're getting at, Oren, is is like it wasn't, it didn't have its its path laid out for it. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that, no, that's, that's the it delineation. Didn't, it didn't have its about. release date like you were suggesting. Right, right, right. right. I, I guess another interesting example is Coda, because really the most famous person in that movie is Marley Matlin, who, you know, is an Oscar winner, but I venture to guess that a lot of people don't know who she is. You know, she doesn't have the same draw that like an Andy Samberg has. 
Um, and that movie, you know, sold to Apple for $20 million, right? Sure. Um, I, I think that maybe, Glenn, you would probably know better than both of us. I don't think people think of it as a success, actually. I think Coda was kind of maybe viewed as a bit of a, of a blunder by Apple. Yeah, I don't know. That, I don't know. There might be people chirping that way. I don't, you know, companies like Apple and these bigger companies, they they don't lick wounds too much on a per film basis anymore, right? They view it as they have a much more macro look at like we're making all this stuff and it all adds up to, you know, are we getting more subscribers and does this one get us more subscribers? Well, maybe not. We'll adjust and get this one. will get us more and retaining subscribers and can we adjust our price? You know, that's what they're, you know, so all the chit chat yeah. about, like film by film, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it didn't make this amount at box office, you know, these days, especially for that level of, but, you know, certainly it's a different when you're talking about, you know, movies of a hundred, $200 million and they're the tentpole for the year. And if they have three of those that go under, then yeah, then, you know, people, executives are shaking in their boots on whether they're going to be around next year. Right. But I think over something like code, I don't think it's, you know, considered like a big loss. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, look, I, I want to dig into your sense of the industry at large and uh, and the nature of how COVID has affected things a little bit and that what you see in the future and, and talk about the, the macro stuff. But I think actually maybe I'd love to walk through what you do step by step for filmmakers, you know, who have their, their film completed. And then, then maybe that some of that information will shake out and then we'll probably finish out the, the episode with with those big picture conversations. But so say Oren's just finished his indie feature. He hasn't even submitted it to any festivals yet. And it's, um, yes. Should I submit it to festivals? Yeah, there you go. That, that's a great first question. So, so it depends. And so usually if someone's asking that question, I need to see the movie to give my subjective take on okay. what it's it a quirky is. sci-fi film. Kind of like if Michelle Gondry directed, uh, moon. Well, there again, it's still, it, you know, sounds great, but it is, it's, it's um, pretty good. It's pretty good. Sam Rockwell isn't there, in it, though, right? Yeah, but we got his uh, right. body double. <laughs> <laughs> his twin bro- brother, Pete Rockwell. Um, yeah, they. no matter who's in it or what it is or how it's described to me, I can't tell you how many filmmakers who have waxed poetic about their films to where the point where I'm like frothing at the mouth, like I got to see this to be just, you know, completely let down. And the opposite, where people are just like, oh, do you mind taking my little, you know, take a look at my humble little movie and then being blown away, right? So um, it's all in the watching. And then I have to just kind of inflict my subjective opinion and taste buds and history on it and decide, you know, and advise them as to whether I think it is something that has a chance at Sundance or a chance at South by. And usually we're, you know, depending on where we are in the calendar year, if it is right for a major festival like that, that's the way to go because that's where the buyers are. That's the way where they'll see it on a big screen. That's where the the buzz or chit chat can happen. Buzz or chit chat doesn't happen anywhere else, but in those kind of isolated experiences. Of course, this is all pre COVID, right? So it doesn't doesn't include anything twenty twenty post you know post twenty twenty. But assuming we get back to you know normal at some point, it's still the best place to premiere an independent film and that, cause that's where they look at it differently. Uh, you, you said, uh, depending on where we are in the calendar year, what would be the ideal time for a filmmaker to approach you? Like when do you well, want to start having those conversations? I love seeing films 
when they're almost finished or, you know, when they're in the best state, you know, where they feel like it's presentable and they feel comfortable presenting and saying, this is my work. I don't, you know, I don't really need to see things when they're halfway done or, or rushes or anything like that. But maybe people want to share them fine. But I like to see things when they feel like, okay, this is what I feel like I could present to Sundance. And, and, and so I can give my take on whether that's, I feel like that's their best strategy. So for instance, you know, really there's only a handful of festivals that buyers attend and it's really Sundance, a little bit slam dance because of when it is the same time as Sundance in January, South by Southwest, Tribeca, a little bit hot docs for documentaries, Telluride, even though it's probably the hardest of the North American festivals to get into, uh, and Toronto. And then, um, there's also Fantastic in Austin for genre films. That's interesting. You bring up Fantastic Fest. I that, I, I like that actually. That's good to hear. You know? and that's yeah. usually more for a, a genre festival, right? Yeah, it's you know, horror, sci-fi, thriller. And so, if you know, if we're in the right time of year uh, for what you know, whatever we're, wherever we are, for one of those festivals to be the first up on that calendar, and, and they're going to take me on as their representative, I'm going to. Part of my job is to call a programmer at the, the the festival that I know, and you know someone in each one of these festivals. Yeah, yeah, and 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 probably the top two hundred festivals or so because this is all I've been doing for the last twenty five years, and then just calling them basically to pitch the movie, uh, but most importantly, just to make sure someone's watching it. Because if you do the math of the number of films that are being, that are applying, and you look at the number of employees and the amount of time that they have to watch these films, you just can't find enough time for them to watch all the movies, or at least all the movies all the way through. And so I'm hoping to try to get a programmer, you know, a senior programmer or a a good programmer, as opposed to an intern or or a volunteer to watch the movie. So at least it gets its day in court. I'm sure we have um, listeners right now that are, their mind is a little blown, even though we've talked about this on the podcast before, but maybe some of our newer listeners that are like, wait, I just sent my movie to Sundance and just waited to get my rejection letter. But there are other movies that actually have people calling the festival and knowing people and making sure that the it right person feels is like watching this them. It's all rigged. It almost feels unfair. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, listen, you can email Glenn at Circus Road Pictures or Circus Road Films. Right? <laughs> yeah, if you want him to call on your, behalf of your film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the thing I say, though, is like at the end of the day, no one does me a favor, right? No one watches a movie and says, oh, you know, Glenn sent it. So sure. well, it's in Glenn Sundance it. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. um, it's purely to make sure it's on their radar and they're watching it and giving it a chance. Because, I mean, they're, they're overwhelming these the bigger festivals, especially are giving you know most of the films it's it's day in court but that day in court isn't necessarily with the top programmers it's sometimes with underlings and then you know and volunteers and different people who are new to the, new to that festival to advise on 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 the various films that they're getting sure so, I, I don't um, know if you guys have seen on twitter there's been a big uproar based off of what is otherwise i think a pretty great festival but austin film festival a lot of people got their screenplay oh, the feedback mm-hmm. and, and the notes aren't always as thorough as you would expect for, you know, the entry fee. And so like, I think Twitter has been pretty, uh, pretty upset on that front as a, as a similar sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I 
do want to say that even though if you you're not maybe influencing them to get your movie into the festival, what I've fa- found with our first feature, we knew Trevor Groth at Sundance, and he um, watched it, and he kind of gave us the odds. He's like, "I like it. It's a great movie. It's not the type of movie we usually program." You know, I think it's in the running, but, uh, you know, definitely, definitely can't, can't tell you anything. And and these are the reasons why. And I've heard, you know, Mike Plant, who was a shorts programmer there for a while, um, he would always tell people, he's like, hey, you you got a 25 minute short. It's really amazing, but it needs to be better than two 10 minute shorts and a five minute short all combined together. Um, And so that type of feedback sometimes can actually affect like, especially with a short, you can be like, oh, I, I think I can get this down to 12 minutes, you know, maybe resubmit to the next festival. So that stuff is super helpful, even if they're not getting you in because they know you. Mm-hmm. Well, and and yeah, I mean, that's that's part of, I think, Glenn, what you were maybe hinting at a tiny bit with needing to fall in love with a film, right? There's, a, I think, maybe a tiny bit of tough love in terms of diagnosing the right home for a film whether that's starting at a festival or a distributor or whatever like everyone wants you to be like hey a24 is you know the perfect spot for, for this film but that doesn't always necessarily pan out right that doesn't always make sense right so i think that that's kind of the the if you're part deal maker and part therapist that's the therapy part right yeah Just kind of there or sherpa right yeah i, I often have thought of changing the, my company name to something to, you know, something to do with therapy because that's, that definitely, I've definitely had a few filmmakers on my couch, my virtual couch. And yeah, and it's, you know, in, in that same time that I'm looking at it, if, if it's not for a major festival, then sometimes it's, you know, there are other festivals, right? There's great festivals out there, Seattle and Austin and, and Boston and Chicago and, you know, there's a lot of great festivals out there. The only difference is that buyers just aren't there, right? Wait, was so Tribeca on your on your good festival yeah, list? Yeah, yeah. Um, although I'd say that there's definitely a pecking order in that top six, and Tribeca is probably on this on the the lowest, just be, partly out of, because of history and timing. You know, where it comes in the, in the year. You know, people are going for Sundance, they don't get it. They go for South by they don't get it. They go for Tribeca, right? There's not a lot of films holding, like, I don't really want to go to Sundance. I want to go to Tribeca, right? It just doesn't really happen that way as much as they'd like. Um, but they did move the festival, interestingly, from April to June now. So we'll see what that does. That could open them up to films that just didn't, you know, weren't quite ready to submit during the year and, um, and don't want to wait so long maybe for the next year for Sundance. So that might, that might help them actually. Uh, June, June in New York city. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. It's a little warm. Great. <laughs> it was great in April. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. yeah it's a spring and fall town anyway. Um, but so Glenn, you were kind of getting at that. There are tiers of different distribution companies. Uh, and I think we'll definitely get to that, but I think you, you were making the point also that like, uh, there's your top tier festivals and then those smaller festivals or those mid mid level festivals. And I think you know, look, there's plenty of other podcasts about people who uh, uh, won Sundance and are rich and famous now. But I'd be curious to learn a little bit more about your thoughts on those mid tier festivals, right? Maybe Seattle and and down and and what that means to you. Um, in terms of selling the film, right? Because you'd, you'd mentioned there aren't buyers at those festivals, right? But I imagine there are probably still some upsides I'd love for you to elaborate on. Yeah, you know, I mean, I or think, downsides. You know, 
Or downsides. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Sure. So I, there's lots of great reasons to play outside of sales. There's lots of great reasons to play festivals. Um, great experiences, movie in front of an audience that you can't replicate anywhere, Q&As, meeting people, getting feedback, travel. You know, it's uh, it's often the best part of the whole thing, right? It's the getting pe- people enjoying your work and getting to talk about it. So shoving all that aside, from my perspective, distributors really could care less about festivals. If I have a film that's in Seattle, I'm going to still say, hey, I'm going to say to the distributor, hey, we have a film in Seattle this week. Do you want to check it out? I'm not going to, you know, ignore it or stifle it. It's not it's not a negative. But overwhelmingly, the distributors are looking at the film itself. Right. And it's what about awards? Does that matter at all? I don't think not so. Really. You see plenty of films that get lots of awards and it doesn't mean anything. It still comes down to the movie. And do when, when the distributor looks at it, it do they like it? Do, do they enjoy it in some way? Um, do they relate to it? Do, do they have comps like it? Are there things like it in their library that have worked for them? Either, you know, sub, either subliminally or objectively, they, they know that, that the, it, this kind of romantic comedy worked for us or this kind of it's this kind of thriller. We know how to do that. What's what you know, if, if the filmmaker submitted art and trailer, do they work or, or do they see a way for the art and trailer to work? Is this kind of film that critics would like? And, and the only critics you really get out of out of smaller festivals are going to be bloggers and film threat and, and, and a level of editorial that distributors just don't doesn't move the needle for them. Right. Because there's plenty of people out there you can find to say that you, they like your movie and you can just not show them the ones that didn't like it. Right. I mean, that's, you know, the reality. And so they're, they're all pretty inured to that. Um, Wait, and it's can not I, that you can don't. I dig in yeah. for a second into something yeah. you said? You said that sometimes the filmmaker will show the distributor art and trailer. What, what do you mean by that? Well, sometimes filmmakers create their own artwork for the movie or create their own trailer. Quite most of, I mean, most do. And it can be, again, I still think it's 95 to 98% the movie. At the end of the day, there are many distributors that can crank out artwork and trailer if the filmmaker hasn't done it, but it can tip the scale, right? If, if someone's, you know, on the fence and doesn't see the angle, but the filmmaker's got the angle, and they managed to say, like, okay, here's what it'll look like. This, this is how we'll be able to turn our our little postage stamp artwork into clickbait. Yeah, um, it's got to be good, right? Because we people oh, yeah. make movies oh, yeah. all the time, and, and they email Matt and me, and they say, hey, we'd love to be on your podcast. We just made this movie. And actually, you know, the movie might be decent, but they'll send us a trailer that they cut that has, like, not the best typography for cards, not the best uh, music mix, you know, not They'll the best. Turn you off. Yeah. The trailer is like a bunch of beautiful shots with not much story going on. And we're like, uh, nope. You, we're yeah. And there that. again, if I, if I have a film that I like that I'm working on and they did turn in, if they do have art or trailer that doesn't work, I just won't use it. I'll either get it. I'll either get them to give me a clip from the movie to use instead of a trailer or and some, some uh, stills from the movie to use to, and, and most of that stuff too, my, when I'm, spraying a film out to the distributors i'm usually sharing with them the movie for you know i I usually pitch it first 
I then share the movie. And I hold back on the other assets till weeks later to kind of poke them into watching it. So if I have a good trailer, I'll use it two or three weeks later to say, hey, did I share the trailer with you? It's kind of my way of saying, did you watch it yet? Without saying, did you watch it yet? Sure, um, that's great. That, you know, so move. there's little things like that, that, you know, that little tricks to try to make it, make it interesting and tweak their interest to watch. And the if movie. there's, if there's like a new distributor on the scene, like all of a sudden, you know, Amazon prime is now buying indie films or whatever. How do you, how do you get on their radar? Like what, what's, how do they, how, how do you cold call people or do you always, I have, with your yeah, network? I have, I've had to, I mean, luckily a lot of the, um, acquisitions people just kind of keep changing jobs so yeah, you know it's so, the so same from, 200 people they're just you know right and yeah. they you know, and 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 so when amazon or whoever is starting to hire they look around for pe- people who have done acquisitions and they lose usually poach someone from somewhere else so it's usually not the case but there have been people that have gotten that have gone lateral from other industries and other things sometimes that you have to just cold call them to start that relationship the, um, those acquisition jobs are are funny because they're so skilled and so specific you have to have the ability to just like just binge movies in a in an insane way like the number of movies that those people have to watch and it's not it's it's not it's a hollywood job but it's not as glamorous as you know people maybe were hoping like you really have to be a, a movie addict to have those jobs you know what I mean? To really to, to make it through. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's just like the festivals, though. I think that there's a lot of five minutes and out, you know. So it's not like there's just you get trained after a while. You watch so many things. You know that things just aren't going to get there. Are some things that are just not going to get better, you know, no matter what. Um, if you see really bad acting in five minutes, really bad lighting, you know, within the first five minutes, you know, like what are the odds that you're going to want it by minute 20, you know? So I think, you know, and I think, you know, on the other hand, when people do make offers to films that I have, I can always tell that they watched it. So you, they are watching these movies and when they go to pitch, they're, they're usually very conversant with the filmmaker in terms of knowing the film and knowing the themes and, and wondering how it was made and things like that. So there's definitely, and there's some that are better than others, you know, I'll say, you know, there are some that are more sophisticated than others in terms of their film knowledge, um, film history knowledge. There's some that kind of obviously haven't seen a film, you know, pre 2010, mm-hmm. you know, um, <laughs> you know, rare. Yeah, I love a couple. Of I them. love the classics like uh, old school. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All those uh, early Will Ferrell movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, so how many indie films do you watch a year? Like a hundred? <sighs> Oh, a lot more. A year? Yeah. Like more yeah. than one, more than three but a week. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Glenn's got a, a nice house in Studio City. He's got to keep the lights on, bro. You can't watch yeah. three three movies a week, right? Did you watch well, any again, movies today? Uh, no, not today. Yesterday? I tend to watch most of mine over the weekend. Mm-hmm. There you and, go. And also really late at night. So I can't, like I can't, I'm also, lo- you know, well, fortunately or unfortunately, a bit of an insomniac. So, and I can't like the day is too hectic. Yeah. So I'm usually watching it after. after and you're 10 not falling asleep like ten minutes into this like hundred thousand well, film some, shot at someone's apartment. <laughs> some films are five and out. Watch it, Oren. <laughs> so yeah. So I'm sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean. <laughs> but some films are five minutes and out. 
just like yeah, yeah, for festivals and you know there's a lot of movies that like so you know like i literally can't make it through a marvel movie at night <laughs> let alone I, like a you know i think of, we we had drea clark on um who is a critic and and programmed for slam dance for for many many years and i, I think now is doing shorts at sundance if i remember correctly but she you know she's like yeah i watched three movies a day you know, like the day that we did our podcast, she was like, yeah, I already watched a couple and I'm going to go watch another when I get home, you know? Yeah. And no, that's for sure. like, like that, that's the, like I said, you, some people are just addicts, you know? But that's also um, the gig, right? It's not like yeah. they have other things to do. They're being paid to sit there and watch movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. like they have to also, it's not, you know, extracurricular time. But like it's, but it's kind of speculative for you at that point, right? You don't get paid until you decide you're going to, agree to take on a movie right that's right yeah i'm not engaged until that you know i like the movie and they like me and i've you know shared all the, my information about what i do and you know give them my agreement and all those things so yeah yeah so i guess you know what what i would love to extract from you and i apologize if you've already given this list a hundred times but you know for someone that's seen hundreds of indie films a year and sold them and got them distribution and seen what brought them to life and how much money was spent on them. Are there any general guidelines or pitfalls or advice you would give for people that are, that have a script and are trying to figure out how much money to spend or like if it's a sellable project, like mm-hmm. any, I, know, any kind of I know it's a very general question, but yeah, um, we do get a lot of people saying like, Oh, I have the script. We want, hope to make it for $5 million. If we can get Sterling K Brown, like just, you know, and you're, I'm always thinking, like, I, I just don't know what you even do with a $5 million film with Sterling K. Brown, you know? So, yeah, what, what give us some some guidelines, some, some of the wisdom. Like, what works, what doesn't work? Do the first five minutes need to be super amazing um, because of what you just told us, that people will watch five minutes and figure out if they want to sell your film or not or buy your film? Yeah, it's all very relative, you know, because it's, it's not that the first five minutes have to be riveting and and blow, you don't have to have an explosion or, you know, something in the first five minutes to, to make a successful film. But hide your bad but, actors later but on. It'd be, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, you know, so, so I'm mostly advising first time or second time filmmakers, right? So I'm usually not advising people about what to do about a $5 million film. I don't, I, I, I tell them, find someone to finance it. Like, well, I don't know, like, you know, that's just, that's, there's just too much, too many moving parts for that. And then that's not my expertise. I, I'm, you know, I once a friend of mine who I, who I used to work with, we were, we were talking to a guy who's, who, who said, um, Hey, I'm, I'm going to make my uh, little horror film for either like 250 or 500. He's like, you got any advice for me? And my friend said, well, make it for 250. So you only lose 250. Stone right. cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, but, that's, but not you know, crazy. You know, I get it. Yeah. Not great. I mean, that's the thing is that, like, you know, the reason to make an independent movie is not definitely not to make money. Right. You can't get into it. You know, at least you've got the people putting money into your movie, whether it's you or other people, have to be doing it because they're lovers of the arts and they love you or they just want to be a part. It's, in, you know, them spending 50 grand is like me spending $50, you know, and they just don't care. It can't be that like, okay, if we make a film, independent film just isn't like that anymore. 
it used to be in the nine, you know, in the early nineties, you could kind of say, well, we can sell, you know, for any horror film, we'll be able to sell Germany for this and South Korea for that. And that's all, that's all just completely gone. So the math doesn't make any sense. And so at the same time, we've had an explosion in, you know, in, in, in technology that's made everybody, you know, everybody can make a movie, you know, without hardly any money. And that's, you know, that's the way you probably should make an independent movie is like with as little as possible. I guess, and then that goes to like, well, what kind of movie should you make if you don't have a lot of money? And you have to kind of, I think, lean into what your passion is and what your who you are and what kind of movies you dig. Because not everybody should make a horror movie. You know, not everybody should make a comedy. I also uh, got a, I don't know where I ended up on this side, on this argument. I got an argument with a distributor uh, one time on a panel and she was saying, you know, don't make a short, just go out and make a feature. You can make it inexpensively. Why make a short when you can't monetize a short? And my, my feeling was, you know, if the short's only going to cost you $1,000 and the feature's going to cost you $50,000, go make the short. See if you can do this. Figure out what you're doing. Like learn the ropes. Don't learn it on, you know, don't, you know, spend 50 grand on something you just don't, you know, you don't know what you're doing. And it was, I don't know, it felt like it was just kind of disingenuous too, because, you know, in her position as a distributor, she's going to make 25% off the top and recoup expenses. And the filmmaker, you know, they're going to get, the film only has to make 20 grand for it to make sense for her, you know, at the end of the day. So if they spend 50, 100, 200, yeah, sure. Everybody just go make movies for, you know, like ridiculous amounts of money. Um, end of the day, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you you can't. You have to get into it for the love of it, for the passion of it, and and ha- and, and whatever you can spend, it's got to be it's got to be from money from people who love you or just don't care. Yeah. What about concepts? Like, do you think? Like, I don't know how to ask this question, but does like a movie need to be original, like an idea to to sell in the marketplace? Do you think the the kind of premise and concept of a movie is as important as like the execution? How, like what? What are you seeing out there, or what's your experience on that? Yeah, again, it's kind of relative because, like, like you know, I, I've said earlier, someone can talk to me about a movie, and, and I think, wow, that sounds really interesting, and then I see it, and it's just dribble, right? It's just it's just you know not watchable, and and the and the reverse is true, and I think that goes to like it's all important, right? There are genres like horror where there's more room for error. You know, you can kind of go make a not so great horror movie and you have the right elements in it. You know, a couple of interesting kills. There's a there's a mark. There's just an audience out there that like just consumes that shit, you know, like crazy. How did that audience find it? Like in like I know back in the day, they would maybe go to like a Redbox or a Blockbuster or somewhere like some friend makes a copy of a VHS tape for you. Yeah, but those movies, they, they, there's like a whole subculture of people who like have their own magazine, like Fangoria and the like bloody disgusting, yeah, bloody disgusting and stuff. Like you know, at metal concerts, they trade DVDs. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, at if tattoo anything, parlors. If it, right? Yeah, if anything, because right. of social media in, and blogs and things like that. Pit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if anything, those groups can find each other even better now. And um, you know, I was talking, and, and even. It's one one of the few 
genres that uh, you can self-distribute and still and do well with. Because if you learn the ropes of distribution and if you've had a couple of films in distribution, I think, and you kind of see what distributors do, um, it's one of those things you can kind of co-opt and do, you know, especially at a, at a smaller digital level. It's not that hard to, to pull off yourself. I think um, also there's like a level of uh, like horror and genre influencer that to a mainstream audience doesn't mean anything, but to a horror audience is a big deal, you know, like a cameo from someone from like reanimator is like going to be all is, is like going to get plenty of posts on Twitter and bloody disgusting. Or like even like Bruce Campbell, right. Wasn't he doing, I mean, Bruce Campbell's like other, the, the, the king of the pile, movie. man. Like you can go way, way more obscure and still get people excited. Do you know what I mean? Sid Haig. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I can't I don't go more know. obscure because that's about <laughs> as obscure as I get yeah, my yeah. horror references. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I something that I, I feel like maybe we're we're getting at here, Glenn, is that you know you have such an expansive understanding of the whole marketplace, right? Like the the next step when a filmmaker wants to work with you after you've screened the film and you guys have gone through the festival situation is you have a big old spreadsheet, right? Uh, and it's basically got all of the people you could possibly want to submit your film to. Walk us through that part a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So again, to, depending on the film and what we think of it, I'll usually tell the filmmaker, you know, there's there's kind of three groups of distributor uh, or, or potential licensees. There's the uh, streamers, which are Netflix, Hulu, HBO, et cetera. There's theatrical companies, companies that really only take on a film if they think it's theatrical. That's like Magnolia or IFC. These are companies that don't have straight-to-digital strategies, really. I mean, there was some of that during COVID a little bit when they were kind of barely doing theatrical and doing virtual theatricals. Um, but still, they really are looking at films only, like only if they're kind of theatrical quality. And then there's the group where most films go, which are the all-rights distributors that are, you know, set up the same way as Magnolia in terms of how they exploit rights, but they don't either, they don't do really, mostly don't do big theatrical. They might do some theatrical, but then they have a ton of movies that they just take straight to the transactional VOD market. And so I usually go with my, you know, with the client and talk to them about those three potential uh, companies. I have some films where I feel like we should try all of them because even if they're a long shot, um, it's still a good movie and let's take the shot but it's more, most likely going to go into this, you know, third group of companies. There's some films where I say like, Hey, I like the movie, but we, it's not theatrical and it's Netflix is not going to, is going to laugh at me. So, but I can definitely get it on the, in this group of companies. Do you, so you don't do the distribution yourself ever, right? Like you're not selling off territories or anything like that. Yeah. So I, I've dabbled in that in the past. I, when I first got into business, I worked for an international sales agency and which is a little different than as a producer rep because you're kind of a quasi distributor in that you take on you take delivery of a movie, you then go to the markets and sell it around the world to different distributors. You then deliver those distributors, they they account to you, and then you account to your filmmaker on a quarterly basis. You're you're truly in the middle. Whereas as a producer rep, I'm more on the outside, helping from the outside. So I'm trying to connect just a U.S. distributor with a, with a, a, a client and they're going to have a direct relationship once they connect. 
and they'll deliver the distributor and the distributor will report to them. And does so anyone, I, do any distributors want worldwide rights like the U S and yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so there are streamers like Netflix that like to take worldwide rights. HBO tends to only do the U S so they're, they're not all the same on that front. Uh, some, all rights distributors have international sales arms. And so when they take the world, they're not distributing the world per se. They're distributing in the United States and then they're selling off rights around the world. And then there are some companies that don't have international sales arms. So you just you can go out and get a separate international sales agent to handle that. My movie, one of the places we made a, a good amount of money surprisingly that was never even on our radar was selling to like airplane like airlines and cruise ships things like that is that something that goes through international sales usually? you know it's it's a it's a rare thing um and only in the last like i'd kind of given up on airlines for independence i used to how everybody worked- saw thunder road yeah that's how i saw thunder road. well so so um I don't know if that was an inspiration, but my, I don't know. Do you guys know Dan Mervish who co-founded Slamdance? Um, not personally, but I've, I've, I've so heard he sold, I've, I've sold a couple yeah. of films for him and he went out and made on his last film, made his own airline deal. When you make an airline deal though, you're making it with a broker who then goes and makes airline deals with airlines. You don't deal with um, American airlines directly or anything like that. And usually when distributors make deal for airlines, they go to brokers who then go to airlines. So anytime you give away rights on airlines, it's usually to someone who gives it to a broker. In his case, he found a broker who dug the movie and, and made some sales for it. And so it's a little bit more on my radar. At least this one particular broker is on my radar. There are a lot of those airline brokers who are just like, don't talk to me about an independent film. They're just like, it's just not something they want unless it's a Hollywood independent film per se with stars in it. So it does exist. It's just not, it's, it's usually wrapped up into uh, an all rights uh, deal with a distributor. Well, so, so I, I want to go back to the, the point you were making about the three different tiers of uh, distributors that you were looking at. Right. Um, because I think that that might be a, an easier way to get to what Warren was sort of digging at of like, kind of the 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 learnings or like the the trends that you've seen so starting at the top you know are there things that you i don't want to be negative but there everyone wants to start at the top are there things that you see in films that kind of immediately sort of uh cancel out their chances of being at the at the tippy top of that distribution pile like things that where people are maybe a little unrealistic about their their own film, you know. Yeah, that's it's it's really more. I mean, you kind of nailed it there. It's more the mindset of the filmmaker than it is the film itself. At the end of the day, that I'm dealing with, right? Because you know, I find most filmmakers, you know, when I talk people through it, most people start to understand the business and see where their film kind of fits. But occasionally, I get someone who just doesn't, who really thinks they've made the next following you know that 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 everybody's going to think that there's this, and, and and i like the movie and i want to help them with it but they're just on a different plane and if i can identify that before i start working on a movie i sometimes won't work on the movie because it's just not worth the aggravation later of them being so disappointed i didn't get them an a24 deal you know do you think you need to decide do you think you need to know where your movie is going to end up 
before before you make the movie. Like we had a an international distributor on the podcast once, and he said that the biggest mistake he's seen is that people don't quite know they don't have a plan for who's going to see the movie and how they just make a movie and then they try to figure that out afterwards. Um, do you think it's important? Uh, I don't know. I just I don't I just so often don't find that the what what the producer thinks of their film ever you know ever quite equals the quality of the film. I've seen, you know, one of the most humble, nice filmmakers I've ever met is Ryan Johnson. And he's, uh, you know, so such a talented guy, um, but Ruined extremely Star humble Wars. and just... In, in, no, I'm, and... I'm joking. I love, <laughs> I love that movie, actually. It's my favorite Star Wars. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um... But, you know, you know, he made Brick and, you know, he, you know, going into that, you know, I don't think he, when he made Brick, he knew that Focus would buy it for $3 million at Sundance. You know, or that you know, Ron Bergman, who was the producer, um, who'd made fifteen movies prior to Brick, you know, good movies, but none that it had that kind of treatment. Knew, you know, I mean, he was a big believer in Ryan from the beginning, but he had also believed in other films as well before they, you know, they happened. And then they kind of they movie, there's a bit of magic to this process, right? That like there's so many things that go into it that you can't. You can't you're individually will a movie. You're dependent on lots of people and actors and all the people, you know, contributing to the thing. And then, you know, something kind of has to happen in the editing process. And and uh, there's a bit of magic that happens when you start laying in the music and stuff and things come together that makes it, you know, that special thing ultimately. And you just can't predict that. So I don't know. I think. I, I always just lean on, you got to do what you're passionate about and be smart and hire great people and work with people you want to work with and, and spend as little as possible if you're, if you're making a true independent film, you know, sure. you know, it makes me think of, I, I, I don't love bringing up uh, advice I heard in other interviews, but I, I can't remember where I heard it, but I remember Seth Rogen talking about the way that he would approach producing his films. And obviously he's on kind of a, a different level, but I think it's still applicable that like he'll find an idea that he likes, that he's excited by. And then he'll think to himself, like, what, uh, how weird is it? How, like, how commercial is it? A, and how expensive is it going to be? B, and then works backwards from there and says, okay, it's like pretty weird. So no one's going to give me $50 million to make this movie. And also, I better figure out how to put some of my famous friends in this weird movie in order for it to make financial sense, right? Whereas, like, if he can't, comes up with something that's really obviously commercial, he just says, oh, I'm, I'm going to do, I don't know, super bad too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, then, you know, that the he kind of, like, prices them out that way. But it, it's, it's coupling, first, your, your point, Glenn, falling in love with an idea, being passionate about it. But then applying a level of of commercial viability on top to kind of figure out if it makes sense or not. And sometimes it's like you've got an idea that you love, but it's too weird and too expensive to make sense. And then you just have to come up with a new idea. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, I think that's true. I, um, you know, I've, I've in addition to selling movies, I've been involved in producing or co-producing, you know, a couple dozen films. And, and I'm definitely more the, you know, put it together, help develop it a little bit sometimes, but help pull it together. I'm not the nuts and bolts guy on the set barking orders. You're like, that's not my, my, my job. 
I've always been attracted to projects where there was, you know, where you felt like the filmmaker had the goods, whether you were right or not, and had a vision and was doing something that they loved. And that's why you bought in in the first place, you know? And then I think that's definitely always step one. Then it's a matter, does this make sense? And and generally, like I'm not reading large sci-fi projects, right? I'm, I'm, you know, it's not even worth me reading. I'm not going to go pitch a hundred million dollar sci-fi film to a neon. You know, that's not what I do. Um, I'm mostly looking at projects from the point of view of if I run to a guy with a little bit of money, can I help? Can, can I convince them to make this fun little project with these other guy, this guy that's got also a little bit of money to make it with, because it's kind of cool and why not, you know? So and then I'm, you know, to the, you know, it's definitely a rich person's problem. Like, well, with, you know, which of my famous actors can I put sure. in the movie sure, <laughs> to, uh, to help bolster this thing? Right. Um, if only that was uh, part of our arsenal. But I guess on a smaller scale, it's a matter of who are some really great, you know, trying to be really strategic and smart about great people to work on it with you to make it, you know, a better thing. You know, my final question for you is you said that, that people should make their movies for as little money as possible. When they come to you, their movie's done. Maybe they played, a, you know, mid-tier film festival, at AFI, at San Francisco or something, and then they want your help. They've listened to this podcast, and they're like, oh, Glenn sounds like the guy to call the people to sell, get my movie sold. Like, how, how do you get paid? Do they pay you a fee up front? Do you take a commission? How, how does that work? How, like if someone wants to get in business with you, given that you guys like each other and each other's work, how does that work? Yeah. So I, I see myself as, as kind of first and foremost, a distribution consultant to kind of handle lots of different things, including festival advocacy, um, negotiation of the contracts, um, consulting along the way, things that not all producer reps do. And so I, I kind of compartmentalize it. So for that part of what I do, I charge an engagement fee, an upfront fee for what I do. But then I, and then I charge a commission for my sales. And I try to balance it out. I, I charge kind of a smaller commission than most because I have this kind of dual role of being a consultant um, and advocate on the one hand. And I have, I have to charge for that to keep the lights on. I, I do a little bit of smaller commission to kind of make up for the fact that I have to work off of an engagement fee for all my films. And does your commission come out of the filmmakers' stake? It's whatever they uh, gross. Yeah. Okay. So the distributor takes the film out. They make what they make. They take their cut and they, they pay the filmmaker. And then whatever the filmmaker gets, that's what I get the commission out of. So that's good because you're incentivized to get a good deal for the filmmakers. Oh, yeah. No, I, I couldn't do it without that per commission um, on top of what I get as an engagement fee. Because so I you know, regularly get checks from people. Let, let's unpack that just a tiny bit, actually, because I think, Oren, you've got a good perspective on this. Explain why you're, the positioning of where you are in the waterfall mix is important, because I think it kind of illustrates a, a pretty big pitfall for indie filmmakers. Yeah. And for, like, my, I, my movie was distributed in uh, North America by this company, Arc Entertainment, that I don't think exists anymore, and they definitely ripped us off in every, every way possible. And... Um, if there was someone like a Glenn that is going to get a commission off of 
you know, the money that we made, maybe we would would have actually seen some money. Right. Because well, yeah, part, over a million dollars worth of sales. Part of part of what I'm bringing to the table is knowing where not to go. And so there are companies out there I don't take films to. And usually I've learned that through other people's experience or the hard way over time, because you don't, you know, just like everybody, I, I don't know that a company's bad until either I word of mouth gets to me or if I experience myself. Um, Sometimes you get a sense from their their personality and the, what their contract looks at like. Um, and that's not to say that all the companies I go to are perfect. There are flaws, but I'm here to kind of help the filmmaker go in eyes wide open in terms of what those flaws might be, whether it's communication. There isn't a, a distributor that's just great at communication in, in, just in filmmakers' eyes. Um, but there are some that are better than others. I quite often serve as the person to get the guy on the phone if they can't get on the phone because that distributor wants me to bring them more movies. So a little bit of knowledge of the contracts, how they can be better, um, a little bit of knowledge on, on the distributors, who's good and who's bad and who's better at what. I think that's that's the main. And, and most of the filmmakers I'm working with are first or second time, third time filmmakers, people still in the true indie world. And, um, you know, you, it's you, you can't keep up. Like I even, well, I do have repeat customers because if you made a film, you know, two years ago, um, who I'm going to and who I think are good has changed. Um, not all of them. They're, they're constant. There are people who, who've stuck around and are still, you know, that I've been selling to for 15 years, but there are people I've taken off the list because they went South. There's people like newer companies that after a certain period of time and seeing how they operate, I'll put on the list. Um, there's some new companies that I just don't feel comfortable with until they've got some, you know, years of doing what they do that I'll have kind of on the backup list there. So there's ways kind of onto my list over time. So that, that that's what I kind of bring to the table in terms of helping filmmakers, you know, beyond just festivals, you know, who should they be with, you know, trying to get that deal and trying to manage that process. So they understand what they're getting into in terms of distribution too. Well, I think you make a really compelling case to, for, for filmmakers to hire you. I mean, I know that's not what you're, you know, I know you're not like overselling yourself, but I'm just hearing you talk. I'm thinking like if I just finished a film and I wasn't super connected in Hollywood and distribution, or even if I made a movie in, an, you know, in another country and I came to the U.S., I actually think I gave your info to someone. I have a friend who shot a movie in Europe and is trying to get American distribution and doesn't know like where to start. Um, and I was like, oh, you should talk to this this guy, Glenn Reynolds. Awesome. Thank uh, you. You're, yeah, you're welcome. But I think it's, you know, I wish we would have had someone. We did have a producer's rep on my on the movie I made, but somehow we just negotiated. They they were not getting a, a part of like what we got, you know, from the distributor. So somehow we just negotiated this absolutely horrible deal where any spare dollar that this company had arc entertainment, they would spend on just making more DVDs or shipping more DVDs to Walmart or basically because anything. They, they owned all of the, the shipping and, you know, marketing companies and stuff. For sure. So they were, they were making themselves. money off of each step, but also if they had a thousand dollars that they would have to pay us and they could spend that thousand dollars on making, you know, a hundred DVDs and shipping them to Walmart and they sold five DVDs and they got, a, you know, they sold, let's say, $50 worth of DVDs and they got 50% of that or whatever they made, they would rather spend our thousand dollars to make $25 for themselves than give us that thousand dollars. They had nothing to lose. 
you know, at least that's how when, you know, we finally kind of shook them down for all the reports and figuring things out. And um, I even asked them, like, what did we do wrong here? And they said, yeah, it's you, you know, you have this net deal here and we (laughs) we control all the all the spending. Yeah, you didn't cap. Yeah, you didn't cap expenses, which is definitely, you know. Yeah. There's a few little rules that you need to know going into negotiating these things, including audit rights and accounting rights. And yeah. And um, um, so it sounds like a Glenn and your camp is very helpful, not to mention the whole festival thing, which sounds amazing. So, yeah. Uh, well, well, yeah, I mean, having worked with Glenn, it, it's nice to um, to have somebody in your corner. You know, to be like, hey, is this crazy? What do you think of this? Should we negotiate this? Who do you know? All of that stuff has been, I mean, you know, experience is important. Um, and filmmaking is filled with all sorts of different skills that you have to self-teach, you know? And so I think you just have to be realistic with yourself about where your skills lie. You know, if you're like a natural born, you know, networker who's been, hanging out at film festivals and like knows all of the buyers and has been doing that for 15 years. Oh, and sure. Like you've got your first film, then maybe Glenn's yeah, not I your want. guy. Yeah. But, but then, you know, you probably haven't um, taught yourself VFX. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you can't be a genius at everything. And I think that uh, specific, there's a handful of jobs that just take experience and relationships. And so, um, you know, that that's the thing I think about. Um, before before we let you go, though, Glenn, I do want to ask. Circle back to the COVID of it all, because for the most part, film productions have figured it out. Either they're shooting or they're not, and and COVID is. We have our protocols in place and all that stuff. But the tail end of all of this, I think, is really going to linger in your part of the business for a while. Still, are there trends you're seeing? Are there things that filmmakers should watch out for do you see a glut of product or is there a scarcity where where are we in the the churn of of the covid fallout for from your perspective yeah it's it's funny because in terms of scarcity i think everybody kind of assumed when covid struck and it kind of and it kind of became apparent that it wasn't going to go away soon you know there's a few weeks they're like oh this will be a week or three weeks or a couple months and then when, yeah. when it said i predicted like, okay, by june we'll be back in the office that's right. And then when it, when it became more of like, okay, this looks like a year long plus, you know, proposition. I had the feeling like distributors were going to need more stuff, right? If they're not going on producing stuff and there's all this stuff that's kind of been made, there'll be, there'll be more demand, but there it's really been the same. I mean, it really hasn't changed in terms of like what, how much they wanted. Everybody's kind of wanted the same amount. And I, I haven't, at the same time, I thought supply would start to dwindle at some point, especially, you know, there had to be several months there where nothing was made. Right. right? We thought we would never have a scene with extras again. Right. Right. But uh, somehow things, I guess there just were tons of stuff in the can, tons of stuff still in post. And I think that I, as much as I watch indie films, I only see a fraction of the stuff that's out there. And, and so I think I, was still seeing about the same quantity of stuff, even though maybe my fraction of the stuff out there increased, my business kind of stayed the same in terms of the number of films I'm working on and, and how um, it seemed that um, how open just different distributors were on to taking indie product. So that hasn't 
really changed. One of the bigger change, I mean, the biggest changes were festivals and theatrical. Um, so suddenly, you know, the major festivals were not as effective a tool as they had been because it's just like sharing a film on Vimeo now, right. To be at South by Southwest, you know, because again, the reason for South by Southwest isn't the branding of Southwest. It's the fact that people are there and experiencing it with an audience and they can get that wow factor. Drinking together. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly. And, um, and so that's been effective. And so we're, you know, everybody's, a lot of people are planning to be at Sundance this year, but we'll see. And um, we haven't quite had a festival that was really well attended yet like that. Could be, but we'll see. And and they've definitely you know, taken less movies than they did in previous years. So we'll see how that affects things. And there's Slamdance too. Slamdance is, sh- is shortened. It's the dates they're going uh, to be live, but they have a digital thing as well. So it'll just be interesting to see what that's like in terms of getting buyers there to watch stuff and and how that how that shakes out. And then I think though, you know, long run, I think it'll come back to being I think people miss the festivals and they miss theatrical. I, I'm I'm not that except for, you know, it's hard to tell like how theaters stay alive in this environment. I think the desire for filmmakers to be on screens. And desire for some audience members to see things on screens will stay. As much as we've got great home entertainment systems and we can see all this stuff, we still got to get out of the house. We still have a shitload of people that love going to the movies. So I'm still pretty optimistic about the future of theatrical and and that still being a thing for at least my lifetime. <laughs> yeah. I think the move is you go get your Pfizer booster. You wait two weeks, get your Johnson & Johnson booster. <laughs> Wait another two weeks, get your Moderna booster, then go to Sundance, do whatever. Then you, you complete the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Glenn, thank you so much uh, for hanging out with us. Do you have a few more minutes to uh, endorse with us? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Unpaid endorsements. So, my unpaid endorsement is a new show called The Murders at Starved Rock. It's a new HBO uh, documentary series. And, true uh, crime. True crime. Yep, yep. Your your grisly murder from the past and uh, uh, a man maybe wrongfully imprisoned, we'll see, still kind of working it out. But the reason I bring it up, besides it being awesome and great, is that uh, previous guests, Jody McVeigh Schultz, um, who was way back in like, I want to say episode 16, 17, he had a film called Echo Lake and is a good dear friend of mine, uh, directed the show. And also previous guests, Previous guest, Andy Radzewski, Andy Riz, photographed it, shot it. Yeah. So, um, and uh, a lot of Andy's camera team is uh, pals as well. So it was a fun time to watch the credits on that one. It's quite disturbing. It's rough. The The murders at Starved Rock were, were grisly. So, you know, viewer beware. It is for, for uh, fans of true crime. But I think it's got some interesting themes. And uh, Jody is, he was a longtime editor. He's, cut all sorts of stuff um including the the mcmillions documentary series on hbo that i really loved so he's a really talented filmmaker and um i'm sure it's going to be nuanced and great so uh shout out to our pals uh jody mcveigh and andy riz uh then the show is the murders at starved rock on hbo check it out and it's out already 
out already. First episode, uh, first three episodes are out already. Cool. Yeah. Okay, Glenn, what do you got? Mr. Glenn, what you got? All right, I got three quick ones. Hit it. Yeah, love it. So first, a book about the business. Dan Mervish, who we mentioned earlier in the episode, who's co-founder of Slam Dance, wrote a book years ago and recently re-upped it. It's called The Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking. And it's got great stories. You know, he's been around for 25 years plus, um, still making independent movies. I'm still working with him on selling the movies. But the book has great little anecdotes from, you know, people like Christopher Nolan and Whit Stillman and all kinds of great, you know, uh, he's got something to say about festivals, about how to get a film made, how to get into the business. Um, just a great book all, all around. Then a, a, a series I thought about, uh, I, I think about all the time. I don't remember the years it came out. It was called um, Halt and Catch Fire. And the reason I mention it is because I feel like it's a great analogy for independent film in a way, that show, because uh, almost every, like the first step, first season, and then two and three seasons combined in the fourth season, each one is this like, you know, incredible collaborative effort to get something impossible off the ground and ends in failure uh, at the end, but everybody having, you know, licking their wounds and, and learning something in the process. But other than that, it's just, you know, for me too, it starts in Texas where I started and ends in California where I am now. And, um, and it's got Scoot McNary, who I think is an extremely underrated actor, shows up in, you know, Narcos Mexico and little things, but, you know, should get bigger stuff, I think. And finally, my Christmas movie for the year. Um, See you comfort next in- Christmas. <laughs> uh, well, except yeah, ex- except for which is really a New Year's movie, but uh, but uh, but secondarily is uh, Comfort and Joy. I don't know if you've seen it's a Bill Forsyth Scottish movie, uh, I believe from the eighties. It's it's uh, uh, about a, a DJ whose girlfriend breaks up with him, and somehow he gets involved in this bitter territorial dispute between two rival families that sell ice cream. And um, it's just a great, funny, we've got a very cool Christmas message at the, at the, at, at the core of it. Awesome, man. Sounds great. Kaplan, what you got, buddy? Okay. I got two things. Number one, I've been making a lot of animated GIFs lately. Uh, I redid my website and I made all the thumbnails be animated GIFs or GIFs, whatever you prefer. But uh, I, th- there's basically four ways I've, I've tried making animated GIFs. Uh, on Vimeo, you can upload a video and automatically make a GIF out of it from the settings. On Premiere, you know, Premiere Pro, you can export an animated GIF. So those are the first two things I tried. They're both massive failures. Vimeo, you can't really choose your first and last frame. You're just kind of like approximating it. And also you can't change the frame rate. You can't change the compression. Premiere, you can kind of set the first and last frame, but it just looks bad. I mean, the, the, the quality is never great. So, um, my two new ways that have actually made pretty good gifts. One I only discovered today, but my first one is Photoshop. Uh, you can actually load a video in there. And, um, if you say, you know, do file export, save as legacy, whatever, uh, for gifts, you can, there's just so many settings you can change to get it to be the file size you want, which by the way, animated gifts are like the word, it's like a 20-year-old format, and I don't know why we don't have something better than that now, but we don't. I think whoever 
whoever manages to sell a better thing will be uh will be helping the world um hopefully that happens soon but uh photoshop lets you make pretty decent ones but then i found this new tool it's actually a plugin for after effects it's called gif gun um shout out to blake benham of sawhorse for telling me about it um but it it makes these really beautiful gifs that are quite small you can kind of set how big you want the file to be and it's really good at gradients and colors and all these things that gifs are really bad at so if you're making an animated gif uh, if you use After Effects, check out GIF Gun. If not, just type Photoshop animated GIF into Google and you'll mm-hmm. find a tutorial. I think there's a handful of web tools as well. Like if you're, yeah. if you're I not. I cannot imagine that any of the web tools are really good at like letting you set the frame rate and the in and out points and um, the way the colors are dithered and stuff. We, should ask, a, we should ask a, a young person, actually, because um, <laughs> I think... <laughs> yeah, there you go. Not me. <laughs> um, also, I just saw like an incredible trailer today. Um, it's for a movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once uh, from the Daniels. It's an A24 film, but it's just like the trailer itself is like it's, it's like a work of art. It's like all you need to watch is this trailer. It's just so insane. And it's basically it's about some woman that exists in multiple universes or something. I don't know. It stars Michelle Yeoh. And Jamie Lee Curtis, but it kind of seems like the Daniels, the filmmakers, who, if you don't know who they are, you should definitely look them up because they made some of the most amazing commercials and shorts and features and stuff and music videos you've ever seen. But it's almost like they wanted to just shoot in every location they could possibly think of and find a way to make that all fit into one movie. I I Um, did. I watched that trailer and I thought to myself, oh, those are filmmakers who wrote a, a story that leans into the things that they do best so well. Yeah, the Glenn Reynolds move. Do do what you love. There you go. Well, well, Glenn, where can listeners learn more about you and keep track of what you're up to? Yeah, so mostly my website, I guess, um, circusroadfilms.com, because there you can find my social handles and my cell phone number and my email address and, and the films I've worked on. Um, and if people want to work with you, start. that's the place to check you out first. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the best place because it's got everything. It's got my in my my contact information and my social stuff is all there. Perfect. Well, um, uh, you can visit justshootapod.com if you want to get links to all of Glenn's stuff as well. We'll have it posted on our show notes. And you can follow us across all social media at JustShootapod and me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm on Twitter at SmiteyPileg. Everywhere else, I'm at OKaplin. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And please rate us on iTunes. Uh, I think it's time for you to finally do that. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.